I'm Tom Tate, and this is the Power Time Podcast. What's up, Power Players? I'm Tom Tate, your host and guide, and I will be taking you on a time-traveling trip through our past, one issue of Nintendo Power at a time. So I'm super, super excited today to be bringing the fire. So today, it is very early in the morning. It is Thursday, February 23rd in real time, if you're listening to this in real time, and I'm going to PodFest, uh, which is a podcasting conference in Orlando. So I'm super excited uh, to meet other podcasters. Really excited to learn more and bring some of the things that I learned to the show. So I'm also really excited because every so often a Nintendo Power issue really gets me pumped up and checks off all the right nostalgic checkboxes. And this issue number 16 is one of those issues. So this is the September-October 1990 issue. Uh, Again, this is volume 16 of Nintendo Power. And before we take a look at what's gracing the cover, let's flash back to this era in 1990. Let's see what's hot and what's not. So if you were tuning into the radio in September-October of 1990, you'll probably hear some of the hot singles Bon Jovi, Wilson Phillips, George Michael, Janet Jackson. Uh, I believe in November we get a little taste of Vanilla Ice, Ice Ice Baby. Uh, so that's forthcoming. Now there's a good chance, if, if you were like me, that your parents called in the babysitter to go see a film every once in a while. And the top films that they might have seen in September, October of 1990, uh, Ghost was very, very popular. Uh, Then, of course, there's Scorsese's Goodfellas, uh, which was top of the box office one of these weekends. And then a film called Marked for Death, uh, which I've actually never heard of. It was was a hit at the box office for a couple weekends in a row. Um, It sounds like a horror film. It sounds spooky. I I didn't have a chance to look it up. But I was dealing with my own horror, uh, my own spooky uh, encounters back in September, October of 1990. And that's because I received a magazine in the mail called Nintendo Power. And when I looked at the cover of that magazine, I was a little bit taken back by what I saw. So if we look at the cover of volume 16, still $3.50 in the United States, $4.50 in Canada, we see an illustration of a mansion, not just any mansion. This is a very spooky old house. And if you look closely, it's actually less of an illustration and more of the claymation style uh, dioramas that we saw with the Super Mario Brothers 2 and 3 covers and a couple of the other uh, Nintendo Power covers that we've looked at. Uh, This house, uh, there's a lot of strange things going on. There are purple and green tentacles uh, coming out of a few of the windows Uh, There are a couple of teenagers also popping their heads out of some of the windows. And then it looks like a green man 
hopping through the front door with strange yellow light emitting from the the, the first floor windows. And then there there seems to be a grate, uh, a grate by the basement uh, with a pinkish hue kind of emitting from the grate and a rusty old mailbox. And if you look at the uh, the night sky in the background, you can see a comet uh, or, or maybe it's a meteor uh, falling from the sky. So this is a very, very spooky cover, very ominous cover. Still playful, still some color. Uh, but yes, this is a strange cover because this cover, my friends, is Maniac Mansion, Weirdos, Heroes, and Space Cadets. One of the strangest but most magnificent games you'll ever play on the Nintendo Entertainment System. Uh, we also have a few notes here. Don't miss Mission Impossible, Kickle Cubicle, plus previews. We have TMNT, the arcade game, Solar Jetman, and a special giant Game Boy feature, which we'll be talking about today. Of course, this has the official Nintendo seal of quality. Uh, You know you are getting the good stuff when you deal directly with Nintendo. Uh, And this is still the source for NES players straight from the pros. So let's turn the page now. And of course, if you want to check out this cover uh, or any of the covers, you can head on over to PowerTimePodcast.com slash 16 for this episode. And you'll check out the show notes where I do uh, upload a photo of the cover. For your viewing pleasure. So if we turn the page, uh, we have the table of contents. And there's a lot of great games that we're going to be talking about today. We have Final Fantasy again. We've been talking about Final Fantasy for about five weeks. And we will also talk about it next week. Maniac Mansion, uh, which is going to be the featured game. And I'm super excited about that because of how amazing it is. Roller games. Uh, don't recall playing it, but I learned a bit about it. And it's cool. NES Play Action Football, Snake Rattle and Roll, Kickle Cubicle, and Mission Impossible. Uh, We'll also be covering that awesome Game Boy feature. A lot of cool Game Boy games coming out, and we'll be covering some more games in preview. Uh, We will also be dropping a really cool bomb, uh, info bomb, later on in the episode. Uh, So there is... Something that's announced in this episode, it was announced before, but it gets a little bit more of a a reveal, and it really got me excited. got me excited for uh, the Power Time podcast because it's a glimpse of what's to come, but it also got me excited just thinking back to the days of my youth uh, because announcements like that are few and far between. So stay tuned for that. Uh, Some of the previews we'll, we'll cover, Dragon Warrior 2. Again, Solar Jetman was on the cover. TMNT, the arcade game, also on the cover. Not on the cover, but we will be talking about it, is Little Nemo Dream Master. Such a good game. Uh, but we are going to uh, not delay. I, I don't want to spend too much time on the table of contents because we have so much content to cover. So we are going to jump right into our first feature. And I think you know what it's going to be.
Who is Meteor? What's a zombie-matic? And why is there a nuclear generator in Dr. Fred's basement? The answers to these questions and more lie somewhere in Maniac Mansion. It's a new breed of game, sort of an interactive horror sci-fi flick for the NES. There's a great plot with aliens, a mad scientist, and his weird family, a kidnapped cheerleader and her friends who are trying to save her. It has great graphics too, and user-friendly controls. Even tuna heads will be hooked on this one. This is Maniac Mansion, brought to you by the team at Lucasfilm Games and Jalico. So for this feature in Nintendo Power, the cover art for the game is repurposed. I really appreciated that uh, because the cover art is very iconic for this game. We see five of the teens uh, that are the main characters in this game. The mansion, of course, is in the background. Uh, We have the meteor as well. And we have Dr. Fred's evil mug in the background, kind of uh, transparent a bit in in the night sky. Uh, So there's a few screenshots here. We see the title screen. And the title screen is important because we see that you can select your party. Uh, which was a key feature to this game. The teens you choose impact how you can solve certain problems throughout the game. Certain heroes, certain teenagers had certain abilities or attributes that changed the items that you could use or the scenarios that you could interact with in the game. And this was really different, I think, for this time period. I don't really recall playing too many games that allowed for this style of play. Uh, We'll talk more about that in just a bit. There's a blurb here also that talks uh, to the different possibilities in this game and how solving problems in multiple ways is part of the allure. It's part of the gameplay. The next uh, two-page spread is packed with content. So unlike a lot of Nintendo Power features, which really just showcase the long side-scrolling level maps and item locations, because so many great Nintendo games were side-scrollers, this feature, it takes time to explain the uniqueness of the gameplay, because for a lot of people, this is going to be a very different style of game. Maniac Mansion is a point-and-click adventure. So similar to other Lucasfilm titles that would follow, uh, and I guess similar to uh, some Sierra titles uh, that existed on PC uh, around this time period as well, you move a cursor around on the screen and you interact with objects and the environment using different commands and actions. So some of those commands and actions would be like push, pull, turn on, turn off, get, use, or open. And you would actually do walk to and then point where you want to walk to. Uh, Those are some of the commands. Uh, So for example, you would select turn on first, and then you would take a mouse cursor and you would go to a light switch and say turn on that light switch. And in a dark room, that would turn the light on in the room. So this issue, uh, it speaks to this, and it also speaks to another cool feature, which is you could toggle between three kids, three members of your party, uh, at any time during the game. So one person could hold down a switch to open a trap door, and then you could switch to another kid. And while one person was holding down the switch, the other kid could enter the door that was being held open. So this level of teamwork play it was required to solve certain puzzles. So it made for a really interesting gameplay mechanic. uh, And you really had to think about where all of your your teens were throughout the mansion at any given time. 
So if you've ever played Maniac Mansion, you know how delightfully bizarre this game is. And, you know, reading about it in this magazine feature, it really doesn't even do it justice because it's even stranger than what's communicated here. And this this article really does do a good job uh, communicating the strangeness. But again, it just doesn't do it justice. Pictures uh, and captions here introduce you to things like the green and purple tentacles, uh, talking aliens that you encounter throughout the game. Uh, we see some glimpses of the cutscenes with Weird Ed and Nurse Edda. Uh, and I'm almost wondering if the weirdness was enough to scare away players, not from the horror, but from just how how incredibly strange this game was. I, I, I didn't look up any sales numbers or see how this performed. I remember it being popular in my circles, but I'm not too sure how well it did uh, overall. But I'm wondering if the just overall bizarreness of the game scared some people away. But it, it is clear, you know, just in reading this and also just looking at the cover that, you know, this is not your average NES game. Uh, it doesn't come across that way. And in retrospect, having played it uh, for years and years, we all know that it is not your average NES game. Uh, each of the main locations throughout the mansion uh, are featured in this issue uh, with screenshots and with some information. So you get little clues on what you can and can't interact with when you are in those particular rooms. Uh, so little hints are dropped. Uh, for example, there's a note here in the issue that the mailbox is fully functional. Uh, so you can use the mailbox. Uh, there's a note that you can drain the pool, but be sure, and I've made this mistake. Uh, so if you haven't played this game, be sure to fill the pool back up after you drain it because the pool is what cools the nuclear reactor in the house. And we all know what happens when a nuclear reactor overheats. Uh, there's also a note here saying that uh, it, it's basically telling you to reset the game when you're stuck and restart at your most previous save because the game has a battery pack with save functionality. Uh, and that's a battery pack with save functionality exclamation point because having that save uh, battery pack was a big deal uh, no matter what title you were. So there are different kids uh, that you can choose, and I mentioned that a few times. Uh, they're your average American teenage kids facing danger and alien brain-melting experiments. Different strokes for different folks. Uh, that's the name of this little blurb here where they show all six kids uh, that you can choose in addition to uh, Dave, who is the main kid. Uh, it's his girlfriend that you are trying to save. So there's Razor, Jeff, Wendy, Sid, Bernard, and Michael. Uh, and again, they all have different skills and different abilities. And I recall, if I recall correctly, every time I played this game, it was Dave, Razor, and Bernard. Occasionally, it was Dave, Michael, and Bernard, but I always had Bernard. Uh, there were certain things he could do with electronics. Uh, and I always had Razor because I believe she was a musician. And there was a moment where you had to, uh, I believe it was play a piano uh, or interact with one of the tentacles and having a musician in the party was, was really helpful. So after that, the issue goes on uh, and it, it discusses a few different ways that you can approach certain scenarios using different kids. Uh, so it kind of touches on the idea that there are multiple paths to completion for this game. There's a bit that I want to cover regarding the history of this game and its development, as well as its legacy. So I have a lot to cover, and then there's even more after that. 
So I want to keep this episode moving at a brisk pace. So we're going to take a quick break, check out some amazing music from this game, and we will be right back. You will recognize that sweet, sweet guitar riffage as Dave's theme from Maniac Mansion. And that was played by Descendants of Erdrich, one of my favorite video game tribute bands. Uh, You'll also probably recognize that if you've never played the game because it was inspired by Thin Lizzy's The Boys Are Back in Town. Or at least that's what I've read. And I I definitely hear that in the music. So uh, I'll, I'll assume that it's true. Everything I read on the internet is true, or or so I'm told. Okay, enough about that. We are going to uh, continue on. I'm probably going to jump around and fumble a bit, only because I have a ton of loose notes and a bunch of sources for this particular episode uh, when I was doing research on, on Maniac Mansion. There's a lot that is written about this game, a lot of really good video game journalism. So if you're interested in video game journalism and good writing, uh, check out the show notes for this episode because I will link everything up. Uh, Really strong, uh, longer pieces from really respectable sources. And I think it was because this was one of the pioneering games, not just for the creators who have gone on to do amazing stuff as well, uh, but for the genre that it's in. So Maniac Mansion was, of course, developed by Lucasfilm, uh, Lucasfilm Games, uh, later known as LucasArts. But you may not know this, uh, and I did not know this, that it was actually first conceived in 1985. So it was first released on Commodore 64 and Apple II in the fall of 1987. Um, so I knew that it was on PC, it was, it was on different systems prior to the NES, uh, but I did not know that it, it was conceived so early. Uh, The game itself was conceived, directed, written, and programmed by Ron Gilbert and Gary Winnick of Lucasfilm Games. Uh, And they, of course, would go on to create more games in this genre. So they were really pioneers of this genre. Uh, The Monkey Island titles come to mind as games that they would go on and, and complete. It was developed using a new game engine. So the game engine for this was Scum which actually stands for Script Creation Utility for Maniac Mansion, S-C-U-M-M. And the Scum engine would fuel some of the future games that Ron Gilbert and the team at uh, Lucasfilm Games would would use. Uh, So this became kind of the go-to engine for these point-and-click adventure games uh, until it got retired in the the mid-90s. So this was ported to the NES in 1990, of course. Uh, The graphics had to be redrawn completely, uh, but the engine was still a modified version of Scum. Uh, It was just 
slightly different uh, for the NES. Uh, and we actually had an, an interview uh, in one of the NES journals with uh, Lucasfilm Games developers who were talking about how the Nintendo had a little bit more power behind it. Uh, we mentioned that in a few episodes uh, prior to this one. So the fun fact that I discovered in Wikipedia is that Tim Schafer, uh, who is now a well-known game designer and developer, he was a credited play tester uh, for the NES version of Maniac Mansion, and he would later go on to design the sequel to the game. So he must have fallen in love with the game like so many of us did, uh, and he was a very talented game designer and developer. So that sequel, we'll talk about it, is one of my favorites. Uh, it's also been reported that Maniac Mansion was heavily censored. Uh, nudity, language, B-movie level violence and horror, all censored from the game. Uh, this was not Nintendo's style. This was not the image that Nintendo wanted to have, uh, especially having the family-friendly console at the time. Uh, they were very strict about things like that. Uh, in early copies of the game, you could try uh, to put a hamster in the microwave and successfully do it. Uh, and that wasn't caught by Nintendo until after its release. So Jalico eventually had to remove it from the game. I also learned, and I'm not going to touch on this too much, that uh, Jalico had two different games created, one for the Japanese market and one for the North American market. And apparently there are a lot of differences between the two. Uh, by all accounts, it seems like uh, the U.S. one is a little bit closer to the original. Um, I, I can't confirm or deny that. I've never played the Japanese version, uh, but the American I've played many, many times. So there's a really great retrospective article on Wired that I will link to in the show notes, uh, powertimepodcast.com slash 16. And this is by former LucasArts team member Douglas Crockford, who helped direct the NES ports. Uh, so Douglas writes, back in 1990, I was the I was the on-the-edge new media technology guy at the LucasArts Entertainment Company, a spinoff of George Lucas's Lucasfilm Limited in Marin County, California. Most of my work was, if I may say so myself, out there. But sometimes I would take on more mundane projects to help out. One such project was the Nintendo version of Maniac Mansion, which was originally created for the Commodore 64 and the Apple II. This was going to be LucasArts' first Nintendo cartridge. It was an important project, but management was overloaded and the project was slipping between the cracks. I volunteered to manage its completion. Initially, Ron and Gary were inspired to create Maniac Mansion uh, in the B-horror movie comedy style uh, because it was reflective of things they were into. Uh, so I thought that this was really interesting. Um, and, you know, the, the quote from Crockford needing to come in and, and kind of help save the project uh, is, is also interesting. So, again, there's just so much narrative behind this game. Uh, the initial sketches and the ideas uh, that Ron and Gary started, they eventually became the fully fleshed game. So this really started as an idea from a couple of video game creating friends uh, who just loved B-horror movie and, and, and comedy uh, movie styles. Uh, and you know, we got a game that's very reflective of that. Being the first game on the NES from Lucasfilm, it feels like this title uh, was probably a really big deal for them. Uh, developing things like the ability to play as three characters and switch between them uh, while having each maintain their position in the game uh, was a technical challenge uh, as well as a logical challenge. And there was talk of removing that feature from the game uh, throughout its development. 
Also, the game's multiple endings and character combinations uh, resulted in a game that has uh, that had a ton of replay value. Uh, so this was applauded by critics, uh, but it was quite complex to develop. Uh, I've read another fantastic piece from US Gamer, uh, and this one was from Jazz Rignom. And I'm going to read an excerpt from that as well. Uh, with the game being so complex, I wonder how they flow charted the design. Ron explains, Gary and I uh, created a little map of the mansion on this big sheet of cardboard. Then we had these sheets of acetate that clear stuff. We had six or seven sheets that we would write all the objects, uh, where it was picked up and where it was used, and then each of the characters on a different sheet of acetate. We could layer these sheets down over the thing, but at the end of the day, it was completely flawed at some level. A lot of it was just David and I were doing the script on it, realizing, okay, this choice is not going to work. And we tried to come up with a last-minute solution to it. We tried to design it out, but so much of it was just figuring it out and then realizing it was all screwed up. So it seems like there was a lot of trial by error. And then David takes up the story. Uh, So back to the article here. When I did Zach, which was another title, I said, no way. Here is the four you get, and that's it. It didn't have the combinations. I don't remember whether Zach was the first or Maniac, but we used some project planning software. If this happens, then this happens. You could plot out the whole thing on a big printout, a fancy chart, so you could see where the choke points were in the game. Everything funnels through this point, or is there something that's missing? That helped afterward to make sure there weren't any holes in the logic. Uh, And as a, a former project manager and Once a project manager, I don't think you're ever not a project manager. I really love this particular story uh, and really all of these stories about the development. Uh, That's part of the reason why I decided to do this podcast, you know, just to dig a little deeper and learn how these games were made uh, and what the developers were doing at this time. Uh, And then also in regards to, to development and creativity, in the same article, Ron Gilbert has a great quote about the development process and constraints. Uh, He says, constraints and limitations are a really powerful creative motivator, says Ron. Sometimes if you remove constraints and limitations, you end up wrecking what you're trying to create just because you have too much money or too much technology. I felt with those early games, especially Maniac Mansion, we were so constrained that we had to make some really smart choices on stuff. And I think that's a benefit. And what happened was they ended up creating, and you know, this is what I'd certainly consider a masterpiece for its time. It became a template for future point-and-click adventure games to come. Uh, just shifting over, you know, the music in this game, uh, we've listened to a bit of it. You know, that was another huge element in, in the development uh, because the music. And this is another thing I read was because NES games really had wall-to-wall music uh, at, at all times. There was a desire to create a really strong soundtrack. So every uh, every kid in the game gets its own soundtrack, its own score. Uh, and that alone, I think, makes this game incredibly unique because as you switch kids, you're listening to the same theme uh, that really reflects that, that kid. Uh, and as we've been listening, these tracks uh, are really fantastic. And the soundtrack was composed by George Sanger, uh, and according to some sources, David Hayes, uh, who played with Van Morrison in the past. So I thought that was really interesting. Uh, enough rambling. I'm going to play one of those tunes uh, now. 
And then we'll come back, we'll wrap up our feature on Maniac Mansion and keep moving forward with this episode. Again, we get such a funky, guitar-driven, uh, riff-driven version of one of the Maniac Mansion songs. That was from the one-ups, and that is Michael's theme. So let's just talk about the legacy of Maniac Mansion real quick, and then we'll keep this episode moving. It was absolutely applauded by critics upon release. Uh, it was incredibly replayable, as I mentioned earlier. The story was refreshing and original. It was a new way of telling stories in video games, uh, and, and people definitely saw that. Uh, and it was just a joy to play. Again, everything came together. The graphics, the music, uh, the gameplay. Uh, it was just one of those shining moments in NES history, in my opinion. Uh, later, there was a TV show that was pitched and approved. Uh, it had Eugene Levy handling the writing staff and uh, Joe Flaherty as Dr. Fred. I'm not too sure who that is. I was surprised to learn this. Uh, And I was incredibly surprised to learn that it actually ran for 66 episodes and it was also respected by critics. Uh, So I've I've yet to watch an episode of Maniac Mansion, the television show. From what I've read, it doesn't really follow the game too much, uh, but I definitely want to check that out for history's sake. As I mentioned earlier, uh, there was a uh, sequel by Tim Schafer and that was Day of the Tentacle. Uh, and I had this on Mac. I had this on an old Mac. It came in a Lucas Arts uh, bundle that came with a bunch of Star Wars games, Indiana Jones. Uh, I think Full Throttle was in there. Sam and Max. Uh, just a lot of great adventure titles, and of course, Day of the Tentacle. Uh, that was released in '93. Really, really fantastic game. And the nice thing about Day of the Tentacle is that you can easily play that uh, in an HD remastered version that was released in 2016. So I don't believe you can easily get Maniac Mansion at this time. Uh, I I didn't check. I know it's not on any of the virtual consoles, uh, but you can definitely play Day of the Tentacle uh, if you can't find a a copy of Maniac Mansion. Uh, In 2013, Ron Gilbert directed The Cave, uh, which was another kind of adventure game in this vein. I wouldn't really call it a, a true spiritual successor to Maniac Mansion, but if you are looking for a spiritual successor, you'll be happy to know uh, that they've recently funded through Kickstarter a new game called Thimbleweed Park. I believe this was one or two years ago that this was released. 
uh, or fully funded on Kickstarter. And the game is due for release in spring of this year. So I think it has like an X-Files, Twin Peaks type of vibe. It looks really fantastic. And it looks like that same art style that you would expect to see somewhere in between Maniac Mansion and Day of the Tentacle. Uh, So keep an eye out for that. I certainly will. I've been kind of gushing over this game because I've I've played it so much as a kid and I owned it as a kid and it was just so bizarre and so weird. And I just remember the joy of exploration. Uh, That was really my biggest memory of this game is the joy of exploration, but also those early glimpses of survival horror in a video game. Um, So the same feelings that I've felt kind of wandering the mansion in Resident Evil 1, I really felt that to some extent in Maniac Mansion. So when you uh, walk into a room and you're not sure what to expect uh, and a member of the uh, of the family in the house is in that room ready to capture you, to catch you, that was a scary moment. Uh, or when it cut to a cut scene uh, when you are in the kitchen and uh, I, I believe Weird Ed you know, says, I'm really hungry, I'm gonna go get some cheese. And you have to leave the kitchen, otherwise he will catch you. Uh, that kind of moment in the early days of gaming was my first glimpse of survival horror, and it was pretty awesome. Uh, I really loved the different combinations of gameplay, so I loved being able to choose different teens uh, and try different ways to get through the mansion. Uh, and I played it so many times, and I've died so many times. There's a couple different ways that you could really screw things up, and I feel like I've done that in all of the ways possible. Uh, So that's going to wrap up Maniac Mansion. Um, I wish I could spend more time on this game, but we are already at, you know, 30 30 minutes into the episode and we still have so much to cover. So we're going to keep things moving and we're going to keep things moving with the next featured game in issue 16. And that is Roller Games by Konami. So in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a TV show called Roller Games. And it was basically a cross between Roller Derby and WWF. I don't recall this game, uh, this TV show at all, but the images that I saw on the uh, on the internet, uh, you know that fantastic thing, the internet, the images look really hilarious. Uh, it looks like a really great show, highly fictionalized, just like wrestling was. Uh, and I did enjoy wrestling throughout the years uh, for being so hilarious. Uh, and there was an arcade game as well, so there was an arcade game adaptation of Roller Games, uh, and that followed the premise of the show. But the NES version was not a direct port of the arcade game. It was more of a uh, side-scrolling street brawler. Uh, it does not take place on a roller derby track. You skate around uh, the streets of a city and you perform different attack moves on other derbiers and other enemies. Uh, there are factions in the game like the T-Birds, the Rockers, Hot Flash, and Bad Attitude. Uh, it looks like a fun action beat-em-up. Uh, hints of the Warriors I, I see in this game. Uh, But yeah, it looks fun, and apparently it plays pretty well also. So if you want to check out Roller Games by Konami, uh, it was released around this time. After that, uh, finally, we have a game that was teased in a previous episode uh, almost a year ago in Nintendo Power, and that is NES Play Action Football. It did not make it in for last football season, uh, the 1989 season. Uh, So... They own it in this epi- in this issue. Uh, they say, better late than never. Uh, so they definitely own the delay there, which is great. Team rosters have been updated. Still has that uh, four-player action 
uh, with the NES satellite. Still has playoff mode. Uh, still has those celebration videos. And this was a gem. This game was great. I actually enjoyed this game more than uh, Tecmo Bowl, which was popular at the time, back in the day. Uh, and I love those celebration videos because they never seem to match up with what actually happened. So you would throw a pass and then it would show a celebration video of someone running the ball in, uh, which was really funny. Up next, we have Snake, Rattle, and Roll. This was a platforming puzzle game that reminded me a lot of Qbert back in the day. So if you remember Qbert, Snake, Rattle, and Roll was a little similar. Uh, in this issue, they cover some maps. Uh, they cover some of the items that you can find. One of the cool aspects of this game was that it allowed for two players. Uh, so my friends and I jammed on this one quite a while. Uh, another puzzle action game is featured after that, which is Kickle Cubicle. And I've never played Kickle Cubicle. Uh, so if you have, definitely give me a shout. I'm curious to hear if it's any good, worth playing, uh, worth going back to. Uh, so I can't say for sure how good it is, but given the amount of text, just text that they have uh, in the pages explaining this game, it looks fairly complicated. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, I might add this to my my backlog and check it out because I do really enjoy puzzle games and I do enjoy complicated puzzle games. And that's exactly what this looks like. And then our final featured game uh, is a couple of spreads on Mission Impossible. Uh, so Mission Impossible is another Konami game, this time in conjunction with Paramount Pictures. The mission begins. The brilliant sci- scientist Dr. O and IMF agent Shannon, uh, Shannon Reed, have been captured by the infamous Sinister Seven organization. It's up to the IMF team to save Dr. O from the group of ruthless rebels before they can extract secrets of national security from him that could send the superpowers into World War III. So this game was known to be incredibly difficult. Uh, We catch a glimpse of the levels in this earlier part of the game through overhead maps, which is very typical in Nintendo Power. There's the back streets of Moscow, the steam plant, Venice, the Syrinx Temple, Switzerland, the Swiss Alps, uh, which looks like a cool skiing level the coast of Cyprus, and much more. So we are traveling the world uh, with the IMF agents. Pretty awesome. Uh, Of course, this was before the Tom Cruise adaptation of Mission Impossible, uh, which does get a Nintendo 64 title. uh, So maybe we'll cover that much, much later in the Power Time podcast. Uh, But yeah, this is pretty cool. Some of the maps uh, are also on the back of the poster for this episode and uh, or for this issue. And on the other side of that poster is Solar Jetman, which is previewed in this game. So we're going to move on uh, to what is basically being shown here as a Game Boy extravaganza. Uh, and before we do that, I'm going to do something that I don't think I've done yet on the show. And that is uh, we are going to take a break, but I'm going to play the first Game Boy track, the first uh, musical Game Boy track from a Game Boy title on the Power Time podcast. Uh, So let's check it out.
So by this point in 1990, the Game Boy is incredibly popular and the library is certainly expanding. Uh, here are a few games that are featured in issue 16. There are a lot of games. Uh, the first, of course, we just heard was from TMNT Fall of the Foot Clan, which is an adaptation of, of Ninja Turtles. Uh, and it was really, really good for a Game Boy title. I remember having this, playing it plenty. Uh, after that, we have Cosmo Tank, Quarth, Skate or Die, Bad and Rad, Cat Trap, Heavyweight Championship Boxing, Balloon Kid, Popeye, Serpent, Dead Heat Scramble, Snoopy's Magic Show, Mr. Chin's Gourmet Paradise, and Godzilla. Uh, so plenty of titles, plenty to explore. Uh, they also show previews of upcoming Game Boy games. We have The Rescue of Princess Blobette, uh, which of course was a, an ad- adaptation of David Crane's A Boy and His Blob. Uh, we had Nabu Naga's Ambition, Scrabble, Side Pocket, DuckTales, R-Type, Bo Jackson Baseball, and RoboCop. Uh, And the games here, they are looking much, much better than the earlier Game Boy titles. So they are really pushing the hardware uh, and evolving the games that are coming out. It's really great to see the Game Boy bloom into a more mature existence. So speaking of previews, all of those Game Boy previews, we are going to uh, move to the next segment of the show, and that is previews. So I don't have any great music to lead us in. Uh, And again, this episode is running long, so we are going to keep things moving. Are you tired of action games with evil, ugly aliens? Then take a break and enter the whimsical world of Slumberland in Little Nemo the Dream Master from Capcom. Featuring challenging but non-violent play, it's filled with fantastic animals and dream locations that will appeal to players of all ages. This is the lead, of course, from our first previewed game, Little Nemo. This is one of my all-time favorite platformers. It's really inventive. Uh, in this game, you tame wild animals using candy, uh, which you know kind of has that boy in his blob uh, play mechanic as well. Uh, there's a gorilla, crab, frog, lizard, mole, and bumblebee. Uh, you can ride them. You can use their special abilities once you tame them. Uh, and this was really, really unique at the time. Uh, A fun fact that I learned in Nintendo Power, the characters and setting of Little Nemo are based on a classic series of Sunday comic pages from the early 1900s titled Little Nemo in Slumberland. Little Nemo was the brainchild of the artistic genius Windsor McKay, who was also one of the pioneers of animation. I actually took a college-level course on the animated cartoon. Uh, So I I learned from a Harvard... uh, seasoned harvard professor i didn't go to harvard but i learned from a seasoned harvard professor all about cartoons uh which is pretty awesome when you think about it so there's a a note here that you can check out some of the little nemo comic collections uh in many different books uh, that have kind of pieced together some of those archives I'm not going to spend a lot more time on Little Nemo only because we'll be featuring this game in a few weeks, so stay tuned for that. Uh, After Little Nemo, we have a preview of Dragon Warrior 2, the sequel, of course, to Dragon Warrior. Here's a great quote. Uh, For years after the Dragon Lord was defeated, peace ruled the land of Alephgard. Descendants of Erdrich reigned there and in the nearby lands of Moonbrook and Kanak. And I just love that. So I love The Descendants of Erdrich, which of course is also the name of, of one of my favorite video game music tribute bands, which we've heard earlier in this episode. Um, 
Descendants of Erdrick. What a great reference. Up next, we have Solar Jetman Hunt for the Golden Warship. I never knew that this game had a subtitle. I always just knew it as Solar Jetman. So this game we'll also touch on in a future episode. Uh, So I'm going to pass right through. Uh, But I did have the opportunity to play a bit last year, or maybe it was the year before. Uh, But this came out on Rare Replay, uh, and that was a game that was released on Xbox 360. uh, And or excuse me, Xbox One. Uh, And the game itself was developed by Rare, of course, and published by Trade West. So that's why it appeared on that collection of Rare titles. Uh, And then finally, the last featured preview in this issue, uh, and it is a behemoth. It is TMNT 2, the arcade game. So I have very few memories of actually getting a game, like physically getting the game. But this is one of those memories. I remember unwrapping... TMNT 2, the arcade game, and taking it out of the box on Christmas morning of 1990. And there were a few places in the 90s where my buddies and I, uh, we really had a chance to play arcade arcade games. Uh, one of those was at the local mall. Uh, we hung out there when we were older, 6th, 7th, 8th grade. There were two different arcades. Uh, one was at a place called Kahunaville, and then the other was like like a laser time arcade or something Uh just in a different nook of the mall. And the other place that we got to really play arcades was at a skating rink. Uh, this skating rink was called Cornwells. And this skating rink was most notable for having the four-player Simpsons arcade machine, which was so good. Uh, I remember just loading so many quarters into that uh, in between couples skates. Uh, and the other was Chuck E. Cheese. Uh, so Chuck E. Cheese, you know, the game of the hour, every hour at Chuck E. Cheese, uh, at least my local Chuck E. Cheese, was the four-player TMNT arcade. Uh, it was a real token eater. Uh, I remember uh, this game just always being packed. I can't even imagine all the poor parents who fed that machine countless uh, quarters, countless tokens. Uh, but imagine the delight of millions of kids out there uh, when it was revealed or when they saw in Toys R Us for the first time that Ultra... Konami would would be bringing the arcade game version straight to the NES. I mean, this was the game that we would play for hours and hours and hours and pour so many uh, coins into. Uh, and now we are going to be able to play it in our living room with our friends uh, at, at any time. It was just uh, magnificent. You know, finally, we had that multiplayer turtle action. Uh, and according to Nintendo Power, we actually got two extra levels that were not in the arcade game. I didn't know that. Uh, so the preview here is pretty pretty good. Uh, gameplay, of course, was limited to two players. Uh, you couldn't have the four-player uh, four player turtle action that you had in the arcade unless you used something like the NES satellite, which this did not support. Uh, but because TMNT1, the first one for NES, was a one-player game, just having two players, for me, was a real treat. Uh, the game also had fantastic cutscenes. At the time, it felt like watching the cartoon. Uh, And I remember playing Turtles in real life at this age. I remember my friends, Anthony, Andrew, and Tony, we would would pretend to be Turtles in real life uh, at my local uh, preschool. Uh, I remember we pretended that the Jungle Jam swing set was the Technodrome. And whenever you slid down the slide, uh, that would warp you to Dimension X. Uh, So we were very imaginative kids back then. Uh, And getting to actually control the Turtles on the NES was just as exciting as playing in real life. Uh, And I just remember, you know, hours and hours and hours were poured into this game, solo with friends, with my sister. 
Uh, really, really great. And we'll cover a little bit more in the future. But we're going to keep this episode rolling because we have plenty of previews to cover, starting with video shorts. So the video shorts games that are covered here, we have Bugs Bunny's Birthday Blowout, which is a platforming classic, especially compared to the uh, previous Looney Tunes puzzle game, Crazy Castle. Uh, this felt like a precursor to Tiny Tunes, which is incredibly enjoyable. Uh, so this is a good game. Up next, we have Gilligan's Island by Bandai, Bigfoot by Acclaim, Circus Capers, Mad Max, Shinjin the Ruler in tradition of Nabunaga's Ambition. We have Back to the Future one, uh, 2 and 3, which was one title by LGN, Starship Hector, A Nightmare on Elm Street by LGN, Rally Bike, Cabal, Narc, uh, and Narc was a fun game by Acclaim. I definitely re- remember that one. And then, of course, we always get a slew of exciting new titles in Packwatch. Packwatch, of course, was the glimpse into the future, the crystal ball for NES titles. Uh, and this issue is no different. We have Magician, Battle Tank, Ultima, Quest of the Avatar, Adventures of Robin Hood, Metal Mech, The Punisher, Bill and Ted, Indiana Jones, Dragon's Lair. We have a Snow White game, Gremlins 2, a New Kids on the Block game, and a few more that are rumored. So that's going to do it for previews, and we are going to jump right into our next segment, That's So Retro. And in this segment, uh, I just like to point out things that couldn't be any more 1990s if they tried. Uh, The first is a tip from Counselor's Corner, uh, and it's based on a boy and his blob. And it's basically telling you that if you do some crazy combination of tossing jelly beans into the blob, you can make him turn into a pile of bricks and mortar. Uh, And you couldn't possibly know that this was possible unless it was revealed in Nintendo Power, unless somebody actually showed you how to do this. And as has been tradition in That's So Retro, I like to highlight gameplay counselor profiles. So every issue, there are a couple gameplay counselors who are profiled, and this issue, they are just amazing. We have two that will profile. First is Mike Frazier. His hobby includes medical research, uh, which I just found to be outrageous. Uh, His highest game score, he finished Kid Cool in one hour and 48 minutes. Favorite NES game, it would be a tie between Metroid and Super Mario Brothers 3. So thank you, Mike, for your service. We salute you. Up next, we have Hans Lowe. He became a gameplay counselor in June of 1988. His hobbies include skiing, drawing, boating, traveling, bungee cord jumping. Uh, So he's a bit of an extremist. His highest game score, he finished Ninja Gaiden without looking at the screen. I don't know how that is possible. I love that answer. Uh, And his favorite NES game is Ninja Gaiden 2. Um, So thank you, Hans Lowe. We salute you as well. So another thing super retro is the celebrity profile in this issue. In issue 16, it's none other than super nerd celebrity Will Wheaton. He was known at the time for uh, starring in Stand By Me, which was a classic movie, I believe, in the 80s, uh, and then Star Trek The Next Generation. So he was in that TV show. Hard to believe that he was only 17 at this time. A quote from him, I admire Nicolas Cage's work more than any other actor because of his philosophy that acting allows you to become anyone that you want to be, Wheaton said. The same is true when I'm playing Nintendo. It's easy to pretend I'm Wayne Gretzky every time I score in ice hockey. 
great quote. I don't know that I've ever heard anyone say that they admire, they admire Nicolas Cage's work more than any other actor. Uh, so that's fantastic. Now, I, of course, I'm a huge fan of Wheaton. I've spent countless hours with him in the car uh, because he is the narrator of some of my favorite audiobooks. Uh, so I listened to Ready Player One by Ernest Cline, Armada, which was his second book, and a bunch of John Scalzi books. And Will Wheaton does such a fantastic job uh, reading the audiobooks uh, for those books. So if you want to check him out, that's a great place to start. Uh, so this was a fun feature. And then finally, there's a brief blurb here promoting the upcoming Super Mario Brothers cartoon, uh, which was very retro, a staple of my Saturday mornings. Uh, And this was a nice upgrade from the classic yet quirky uh, and kind of weird Super Mario Brothers 2, uh, Super Mario Brothers Super Show cartoon. Uh, And in 1990, Captain N and Super Mario Brothers 3, this was like such a great block of cartoons. Uh, So I absolutely remember that. So we're coming up towards the end of the show, uh, but it, I, I'm, I hope that you stuck around. I'm glad if you're still listening. Uh, I know this is a longer episode, but we're going to move into our next segment, Are We Having Fun Yet? And we are going to drop a bomb because a major reveal is just kind of plopped into this issue casually. Uh, and I'm really, really excited about this. Uh, it was already, again, casually announced in a previous issue, but what we have now in NES Journal, uh, in the NES Journal section of the magazine, is a full reveal of the 16-bit Super Famicom, so what will later become the Super NES. And in this issue, we see a full prototype, we see an image of it, we see screenshots of Super Mario World, uh, which all look amazing. We learn about the launch titles, which also include uh, Flight Club and F-Zero, as well as a Zelda title coming later in the year. And I'm not going to read all of the tech specs, but it's kind of funny because there's a huge emphasis on the actual specs of the Super Famicom. I'm not sure who actually cared how many pixels and colors it can show on the screen back in this day, but the numbers, I guess, were impressive uh, for investors and fans. Uh, This early on uh, sneak preview of new consoles, this is not something that I particularly remember. I don't remember uh, hearing rumors about new consoles uh, back in this day, I just remember magically seeing them uh, in department stores or hearing that a friend got one. And it really wasn't until I started getting into E3 and following along with the video game industry specifically that I started to keep an eye out for announcements like this, like with the N64. Uh, nevertheless, we have a new system on the cusp. And I, you know, I would say SNES and N64 are my favorite generations of console gaming, Nintendo console gaming. So I'm really excited to get into it. I love the NES and these episodes have been fantastic to produce and these games have been fun to replay, but I cannot wait uh, to dig into some Super Nintendo classics and rare gems. So to round out uh, the Are We Having Fun Yet segment, we have a Howard and Nestor comic here. Uh, Issue number 16 covers Nestor 13, a riff on Golgo 13. Uh, It's clever, maybe a bit too obscure uh, for a Howard and Nestor comic. After that, we have uh, in Mailbox some pics of fan mail. So this will become a little bit more popular popular later on. I don't remember seeing it so much uh, in previous issues. So it's cool to start seeing the envelopes that are hand-drawn, the Mario and Zelda and Link designs that are hand-drawn for letters that are sent in uh, for Mailbox. Um, So really hard to describe. 
uh, because I'm looking at pictures and you're listening to audio. Uh, but if you Google Nintendo Power fan mail, uh, you'll see throughout the years, uh, some of the fans have drawn some really awesome stuff. Okay, so we are going to wrap things up. Uh, and as always, we'll wrap things up with the top 10 as reported in issue number 16 of Nintendo Power's top 30. But we have a new edition this week. Game Boy's catalog is now worthy enough to have a top 10. So top 10 for Game Boy, we have Tetris, Golf, TMNT, Double Dragon, Final Fantasy Legend, uh, Revenge of the Gator, Gargoyle's Quest, Batman, Super Mario Land, and Quarth. Uh, So those are your top 10 Game Boy games of this issue. Your top 10 of the top 30 for the NES titles, we have Super Mario Brothers 3, Final Fantasy, TMNT, Ninja Gaiden 2, uh, after a full uh, strategy guide release, uh, we have Super Mario Brothers 2, Mega Man 2, Tetris, Zelda 2, The Adventure of Link. At number 9, we have Batman. And at number 10, we have Battle of Olympus. It's a mythical Zelda 2-type adventure in ancient Greece, and it's a real winner according to the pros. I've never played Battle of Olympus, so I'm, I'm a little curious about that one. As you may recall, the top 30 is selected by averaging the players, the pros, and the dealers' picks. Surprisingly, Final Fantasy is number two in the top 30 overall, but it's only number 26 in the players' picks. So while Nintendo has been promoting it week after week after week, uh, it's it's not even in the dealers' picks, and it's barely in the players' picks, but it's number one for the pros. Uh, So it's interesting to see how the pros influence what ends up Uh, the pros and the editors influence what ends up in the magazine. Uh, So you can probably read between the lines with a lot of this stuff, issue over issue. It's pretty interesting. So up next week, uh, we have a Final Fantasy blowout. Next week's issue is the Final Fantasy Strategy Guide, so we will be digging deeper into the classic title that started it all, started the franchise. Featured music this week, uh, of course, we've first heard Azor Flux, Eat My Chips, uh, which is the official unofficial theme for the Power Time podcast. Uh, after that, we heard Maniac Mansion's theme. We heard Dave's theme from the Descendants of Erdrick. We heard Michael's theme, uh, and that was from The One-Ups. And we listened to a Game Boy track from TMNT. And you can check out links uh, to these artists, and I would love it if you support them. Anytime I play a track from an artist on the show, I purchase the track. Uh, I really like supporting these bands and artists because I want them to know that I care about the awesome work that they're doing, uh, and I hope that they can continue to do it uh, because these video game tribute uh, songs and albums are so good to listen to. Uh, So if you want to check out the links, you can go to powertimepodcast.com slash 16. And while you're over there, I also like to drop some fun YouTube videos. I typically do uh, three relevant YouTube videos per episode. Uh, So if you want to check that out, please do so. Uh, As always, I would love it uh, if you gave me feedback on the show. So you can reach me at Yo Power Time. Again, that's Y-O Power Time on Twitter. Let me know what you think. Uh, If you have any feedback, uh, I would love to continue to improve. And... My call to action for you, if you're listening, is to subscribe to the show. So if you have been listening casually uh, for a couple weeks and you've been enjoying it, or maybe you've been listening since the very beginning, uh, make sure you hit the old subscribe button in iTunes uh, or subscribe through your favorite uh, podcatcher, podcast app. 
Um, Google Play also has the Power Time podcast, so you never uh, miss a beat, never miss an episode. Uh, I would greatly appreciate that. We have a lot of great content forthcoming, uh, and it's going to be a blast. We are only eight days away from the release of the Nintendo Switch. Cannot wait to talk about that. Uh, and we have a lot of exciting things going on. So that being said, I'm going to sign off. We are over the 60 minute mark. So I thank you for your time and attention for hanging out with me today and talking about great games. Uh, And until next week, keep on playing with power.